Yeah, thanks. You can be seated. And uh, let me just make a couple of comments before we uh, head into our time in the Word. And this will be relevant for obviously all of us uh, with Northridge and Chapel and Cactus join us and all of you uh, still with us online. Uh, the first comment that's kind of a housekeeping thing is just a massive thank you to all of you for what God has used you to accomplish through with the Better Together journey. I know we mentioned it earlier, but I'm not sure how many of you realize what a gift uh, you gave to me as your pastor and how we went about resourcing uh, the Northridge and Cactus campuses through a Better Together time. And what I mean by that, and some of you remember this, is that when we uh, did this massive journey or campaign called Better, or, I'm sorry, Compelled by Grace, uh, back in 2013 to 2015, it was one of the largest capital campaigns a church had done since in America since the uh, Great Recession, and it just about undid me. I mean, I, I got to the end of it, end of 2015, and I was just, I mean, I was undone. And, uh, and I told the elders that, and I, I made a comment uh, to you as a congregation that I've kind of regretted, but it was honest. I essentially said, I'm never doing a capital campaign again. So I said, in fact, I point blank said that if you guys decided to do another capital campaign, find a new senior pastor, you know, and, uh, and I was just being honest. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, don't ever say that because three years later, God, who's in control of this stuff, lifts up Northridge and, you know, we have a need to resource this. And, and I said to the board again, I said, I, I just don't know if I have it in me. And, and our elders are very wise, you guys know that, and they said, well, then let's not do another capital campaign. Let's not pull out a thermometer. Let's not bake cookies. Let's not have, you know, let's just bring the need to the congregation and, and let them respond as God leads them. And that's what we did. But it was, wasn't a small need, $7.7 million. Even in a church this size, that's a tremendous amount of, of money. And here we are now three years later, and you all, without having to bake cookies and do a thermometer and all this, did, did an amazing job of responding to uh, the needs that God's church has. And, and again, I just, I don't talk about this very much, but just thank you, because it showed me that I'm not sure we have to do all that stuff. If we have a healthy body, just bring the need to the congregation and let you guys, as God leads you, decide, you know, what to resource and how to resource it. And you did. So thank you for doing that. And again, we, we have more projects in the future, and I think we're going to do it that way, most likely, you know, as we look to now launch our Fountain Hills campus, and we're talking to other churches about merging your stuff. We'll bring it to you, and, and you guys, as God leads you, will uh, decide how to resource your church, and so thank you for that, that gift that you gave. Uh, the second thing I want to mention before I pray that's, I think, really, really exciting, and again, it might have flown past you, but I hope it didn't. In all campuses today, we did that virtual choir to start off our, our time together. Wasn't that just amazing how they did that? Yeah. And uh, it, it I, they sent that to me midweek, and I was like, oh, this is going to be a great weekend. And, and it was really amazing. And part of what we're trying to do there, and this is relevant for all of us, is that COVID, if it gave us any gifts, <laughs> gave us the gift of, of being able to re-envision how worship and choir and stuff moves forward, because we can't be together physically or have not been able to for the last year. And so we've done that digital choir a few times. And if you noticed in this one, this is really important, they were younger in nature too. 
I love our choir, I'm a big fan of it, but our choir, to be kind about it, is a mature group of people. They are a seasoned group of people, and, and that makes sense, just like some of you go, well, you ain't no spring chicken. You're right, I'm a mature, seasoned pastor, and, that, and that's the way. And so we're in a huge push to be more intergenerational, as many of you know, and so coming out of COVID, the vision for the choirs that one, it'll be a central choir for all campuses, and then we, we want it to be intergenerational in nature, which is what you felt today. So what that means is, is that for any of you folks that aren't seasoned and mature, if you can carry a note at all, we need you and we want you and you're going to be the ones to forge the future. I don't know if you noticed, but all of our worship leaders, most of them are younger now. That's by design because we need that moving into the future and it's a concerted effort upon our, by our elders and you guys are gonna be benefited of that. God's gonna be glorified in that so we'll continue to keep you posting that but the choir is just one example of that. Well, uh, we're gonna be continuing on in our little series here, working our way to Easter called Final Words. We're looking at the red letter words, uh, Jesus' words of John 19 as he is uh, on the cross. So kind of a heavy series, but also very, very life-giving uh, for you and me as we hone in on these words of Jesus that were his final words before his death and then consequent resurrection. So why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray and then we'll dive right in. God, our Father, we thank you for your church. We're gonna focus on that today because Jesus is gonna lead us into a discussion on that today, Father. And so it's a great day to celebrate better together and the culmination of this journey that continues on now, Lord, uh, in other ways and other churches that we'll be merging with. And Lord, we also are, are grateful for the body of Christ here that's intergenerational in nature with younger and older and, and, and male and female and all types of folks, Lord, uh, coming together to form the church. And so, Father, I pray that as we focus on your church today, as Jesus leads us in that discussion, that your Holy Spirit would inhabit uh, this time with your wisdom and with your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So I gotta say something kinda hard to us Christians today that you have to hopefully receive because historically we've kinda uh, erred a little bit and that is that, that over the last 2,000 years, Christianity ha has gone down a road that's not always healthy and, and we've tried to domesticate the cross of Jesus. Let me repeat that. Uh, kind of like trying to domesticate a wild, roaring lion. Over the last 2,000 years, Christians have tried to domesticate, I think without even knowing it, uh, the cross of Jesus. And you're saying, what do you mean? Well, what was originally a vulgar, horrific form of death in the Roman era, reserved only for criminals of the worst sort, 2,000 years later, think about it, we have made the cross into nice necklaces, cool tattoos, large symbols in front of church sanctuaries, bumper stickers for our cars, and even wrote nice, quaint songs about it. But one of my favorite hymns is a, an example. At the cross of the cross where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. 
That's what we've written about the cross. Not a bad song, not at all. It's just that what I need you to see today is that we've domesticated the cross. We've turned a once roaring lion into a kitten. And before you get all offended and mad at me for saying this, let's get our biblical bearings straight so that we can be clear on this. We're looking at John chapter 19 this winter as we make our way to Easter. Jesus has been on trial before the governor, uh, uh, the Roman governor Pilate, and he's under pressure, Pilate is, by the Jewish leaders to sentence Jesus to death, death on a cross. And so John 19 verse 16 propels us into the action today. Let's look at it together when it says this. It says, so he, Pilate, then handed him, Jesus, over to them, the Jewish leaders, to be, say this word with me, crucified. Some of you didn't say it, say it again, crucified. That's what we need to focus on here because you see the next eight and a half verses of John 19 go on to describe in detail what it was like for Jesus to be crucified. It goes on to say that after he was beaten and brutalized for a few days before this, he was now required to carry his cross. So picture a huge wooden beam. You ever tried to carry one of those that Jesus, after having been beaten, has to now carry himself outside the city gates of Jerusalem to a place called the place of the skull. It was where they crucified people back then 2,000 years ago. It would be akin to a modern death chamber today, not a happy place at all. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospel writers, point out that Jesus was so weak from loss of blood and from the beating that actually somebody had to come along and help him carry his cross. It was that arduous of a thing to do. Once they got to the place of the skull, they crucified Jesus next to two hardened criminals. You see, crucifixion was reserved for the worst offenses back then, capital crimes, because it was the worst form of punishment, the most brutal form of punishment that the Romans could come up with. Some of you have been exposed over the years through teaching like this to uh, exactly what happened with the crucifixion and with Jesus. I'm not going to give you all the, the gory details today, but John tells us some of them here, and it's important for you to understand what happened. You've seen some renditions of a crucifixion back then where Jesus is on the cross like this, and his feet are crossed, and there's a, a nail between uh, into his legs. Actually, that's a little bit deceptive. The way the Romans would do it is that they would turn the person to the side so the nail could go through both ankles right into the cross, and then the person had to twist like this. And then they would obviously put nails into both the person's hands, but it was a very uncomfortable way uh, to be put on the cross. Then they would foist the person, in this case Jesus, up on the cross. And some of you know this, the, the way that you would die by being put on a cross back then is that you would slowly suffocate to death. Uh, you see, the weight of your body would push down on the cross and, and your lungs would eventually begin to fill with fluid and, and you would slowly suffocate. And the only way to bring relief in the midst of that would be to push up on the, those nails that were in your feet and on the hands, and it would bring just a few seconds of relief before your body sagged once again. During this arduous time, you would be taunted and ridiculed because you were a criminal. With Jesus, they put up a sign that said, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, as a mocking to him. 
And then they'd even stab and beat you further on the cross, which they did with Jesus. And it would take anywhere from a few hours to a few days, imagine that, for somebody to die this way. I mean, capital punishment's brutal no matter how you look at it, but today with a lethal injection, you know, we're scandalized that the person doesn't, you know, expire right away. Back then, the point was to keep them alive for a few hours or a few days so that they would suffer this way and be a painful and long death. Once done, then the soldiers who were overseeing this would be paid by being able to take the clothes of the person. Cloth was very valuable back then. So they would take the outer garment and they would divide it along the seams into fourths. But then the inner garment that was just one piece, they would also take from the dead person and they would then roll dice to see who gets that one. And that's precisely what they did with Jesus. And then they would take the person down and bury him or her. This is the process John and the other gospel writers describe for the crucifixion of Jesus. They're simply describing, don't miss this, a well-known form of capital punishment back then, well-known because it was used in the most severe cases by the Roman government, and it was brutal and horrific. Please see, there was nothing domesticated about it at all. Nobody talked about this in polite society. Nobody sat at a dinner party back then and said, hey, let's talk about crucifixion. Any more than you would bring up at a dinner party, lethal injection or the electric chair. You might talk about it behind closed doors, but not in public. You see, the cross back then, and this will blow some of you away, was not a symbol of faith. It was a symbol of brutality and shame. And even though the New Testament writers would make it clear that the cross was where Jesus atoned for our sins, and hence it was all part of God's plan and purposes, what you also need to know, and isn't this revealing, that they still struggled with making it a core symbol of the Christian faith, and this went on for centuries. That's right, for the first 300 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, they did not use the cross as a symbol of faith. You're saying, what symbols did they have? Glad you asked. In the second century, we have archaeological evidence. Many of you have heard this, that they use symbols like an anchor or, or a boat or a fish for their faith, called an ichthus. So the fish was a common symbol for faith back then. In the third century, we have further archaeological evidence that then they used symbols like a shepherd or sheep or dove and again, a fish, all as symbols of their faith. They had symbols like we do today of their faith in Jesus. It was not until the fourth century AD when the emperor Constantine legalized Christianity and then abolished crucifixion as a form of capital punishment and then put the cross on the shields of his soldiers. It was not until then that the cross became an abiding symbol of faith for Christians. But it took centuries to happen, and don't miss, it really didn't happen until people stopped associating the cross with capital punishment with crucifixion. They simply started associating it, associating it with the atonement with Jesus' death for our sins. And so what do we learn from this? Here's what we learn. Don't hear me saying today that it's wrong to associate the cross with our Christianity. Of course I'm not saying that. 
Don't get rid of your necklace. For those of you who have a tattoo, don't get rid of that, at least for that reason. Uh, for those of you who, who like crosses in front of the church, we're not getting rid of that. It's a good symbol of our faith. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need to be very careful that we do not domesticate it too much. We need to be careful not to gloss over the shame and scandal of the crucifixion. Because if you do, you run the risk of not reading the Bible and the Gospels correctly. Because what John is trying to make clear here, and we're going to see more about this in a second, is that this is a dark, brutal, shame-filled scene. And even though it's Friday and Sunday is coming, it's still Friday. And that's what John wants us to see. And we need to be careful not to turn the roaring lion of the cross into a kitten, or better said, taking the crucifixion out of the cross. Now, I think you guys get it. With this understanding, and only with this understanding, are we ready to read the next three verses of John 19 that are potent, if there was ever potent verses, because Jesus is about to speak from the cross. Let's read about what happens. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. What? Crucified Jesus on the cross, divided up his garments. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, I'm going to submit to you that this is a, a, a very, very fascinating and almost disjointed scene going on here. Once you understand crucifixion and the cross and the words that Jesus announces from this cross. But before we get to that, let's just cut to the quick and note what is going on here and why it's so crucial that we don't sanitize the crucifixion because here's what I believe the main point of what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us that when life is darkest, that he and the Father, God, calls us to community. That's what's going on in this scene and it seems to come out of nowhere. That when life is darkest, God calls us to community. But why do I believe that this is the main point? Because you see, interposed on this scene of a horrific crucifixion where the Son of God is at arguably the darkest moment of his life, where all the players present are in a really dark place because they have no understanding as to what is happening here, Jesus makes sure to call them to radical and life-altering community with each other. <laughs> That's almost a disconnect there, isn't it? I mean, you think about it, Jesus on the cross, and if you were writing the story, how would you write it? That they're this dark moment, and, and they don't understand what's going on, and Jesus is about to speak to them, hanging on the cross. You'd think what he would say is, Richard, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> it's gonna be okay that God has a purpose behind this. He has a plan. I'm gonna rise in three days, because they already told me he was gonna do that, and then I'm atoning for your sins. It's okay, but Jesus doesn't say that. He looks at his mother and says, behold, your son, by pointing to John. And then he looks at John and says, behold, your, your mother. And you have to ask, what's going on with that? 
Now, when you look closely at this scene here, and I, and I actually looked very closely at it this week, you have a, one Savior hanging on the cross, the Savior. You have, you have four women hovered around that cross, and then you got John, right? So, so look back at the scripture, you'll, you'll see that. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, Mary, and then his mother's sister. Pause on that. This is really rich. Uh, many commentators suggest that his mother's sister was named Salome because she's mentioned in Matthew and Mark's account of the resurrection and who was, I'm sorry, of the crucifixion and who was there. And so if it is Salome, Salome was John's mother. So dial into that. If that's true, then you have Jesus and his mother. You have John, as we've seen in a minute, and his mother. Okay, so, and then they list the other two people there, Mary, the wife of Clopas. We know nothing about her. She's only mentioned here, so whoever she is, we don't know. And then Mary Magdalene, who we know a lot about because she was the woman that Jesus cast seven demons out of, and she became a very faithful follower of him. So you got three Marys, Salome, and then you have uh, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yeah, I just love the way John referred to himself in the gospel, don't you? Do you, have, do you have a kid in your family who says, I'm the favorite? That's kind of what John does. I mean, he basically just, I mean, well, I don't know what Peter thought of that and the rest of the disciples, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John referred to himself. But we know that that's John referring to himself that way. So it's John. And, and with that understanding, notice two things that are said to these two players. And then John gives an, an editorial comment. The, the first thing said, go back to the scripture, that, right, is that Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And then he looks at John and says, behold your mother. That word behold is worth focusing on because I think that's the operative word. Almost every translation of the Bible, thankfully, translates this behold. The NIV, I'm not picking on it. It's a good translation. My wife loves that translation, but it, I think it uses something like here. You know, here is your mother, here is your son. That, that's a really weak translation. This word translated here, behold, as well as in the ESV and the King James Version, is, is a word that was very common in the New Testament. In fact, it appears over 320 times in the New Testament. Very, very common word. And watch this. The word ranges in meaning from simply meaning look to look and then recognize. Or when it's used in its most full, rich sense, it can mean look, recognize, and know. And depending on the context, it can mean the weaker sense or the more you know, superficial sense or, or the very rich sense. So, so again, I, I looked at a lot of the usages this week of it. If I say to you right now, behold, a stool, and then I sit on the stool, that was a rather quick scene there in which you didn't have to do much intellectual work. You just looked at the stool and I sat on it and now you're more interested in what I'm saying than the silly stool I'm sitting on, right? That's how the New Testament would use this word every once in a while, just saying, look, behold, uh, this. And again, it, it's only in the first sense. But if I take that word further and say, behold, a screen, <laughs> and then I point to you what's written on this screen and you read it, look, recognize and know. Now you're, you're going further with this idea of behold. You, you, you're, you're looking and you're recognizing something. That's the second way this word is used, a bit more of a deeper sense in some contexts. And then imagine, now I take it even further and I say, behold, Alan and Anita are in worship here again. 
Alan and Anita are faithful attenders of Scottsdale Bible Church, most likely members. And, and, and Alan is just a wonderful, humble guy. I spent some time with him on one of our trips and we had a meal together. He's a vegetarian, but that's okay. And, uh, and, and just uh, that's why he's so thin and, and in great shape and all of that. And, and they're not judgy. They're just wonderful people. And Anita, she works for ADF. She's a fireball. She's incredibly bright. She speaks French. See, I'm telling you about th this couple here who are faithful attenders of our church, and now what am I doing? I'm saying, behold, look, recognize, say it with me. No. See, it's a relational thing going on there where I'm saying, let's go deeper. Let's start to develop relationality here as I did with the example of Alan and Anita if I use behold that way. Let me ask you a really key question. In John 19, when Jesus says behold, which way do you think he's using it? <laughs> I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know that he's not just saying look. He's not just saying look and recognize. He's saying to, to John and to Mary, behold, look, recognize, know. Develop community, develop relationality. And Jesus would use this exact same word to talk about his father. Look at John 8, 55. This is in the context where the Pharisees say they know God and Jesus says, no, you don't. He says, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Same word translated behold from the cross. Do you get the idea? Jesus is saying, I know the Father. This word is used in human context as well in the scriptures to talk about how we can know each other in a deep and abiding way. You get the idea. It's a rich word when used to mean look, recognize, and know. And the point is, is that here in G John 19, Jesus is inviting Mary, his mother, and John, one of his closest followers. And here's what's really rich. With Jesus, the son there, and Salome, most likely the mother there, Jesus is inviting these two people not from the same family to look, recognize, and know each other. He's inviting them into community with each other, right in the midst of their darkest times. Maybe now you can see why you and I dare not domesticate the cross, why we shouldn't gloss over the crucifixion, because the point John is making as he is inspired by the Spirit and chronicling this is that it's in those darkest times when Jesus is hanging on the cross that he invites you and I into community with each other. And we're not quite done yet. Because then John goes on to give one editorial comment that is also very rich and profound. He says, from that hour, the disciple, John, took her, Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his own household. Now, very fascinating. Again, the King James and the New American Standard Bible do something very interesting in their translation here. They, they put this word household into parentheses. And the reason is, is because if you translate this word from the Greek, it's just one word translated on household here, it really means to take into his own. They add household because it does include household, but what the word really means is that you take someone into your realm. You take someone into your richest experiences of relationality and spirituality. You, you take what, someone into your own you treat them like you would family. You bring them into your entire personal life. 
And so what Jesus is doing here and what John is giving a comment on is that Jesus is basically saying to these two non-family members, I want you guys to have the kind of community that treats each other like you would family. So I love how one commentator nails it. This is a great uh, little comment here. He says, from the moment of the cross, Jesus has created a new family. His mother, a model of faith, and disciple whom Jesus loved are one. As mother accepts the disciple, and the disciple accepts the mother. So add it all up, because we're going to accelerate right now. Behold, look, recognize, and know. A mother who is not biologically one's mother, a son who is not biologically one's son. But Jesus says, begin to love and relate with the strength of family behind it. That's the call given here, especially, he says, when life hurts the most. And all I can tell you, gang, is that when you and I dare to listen to Jesus here during our own dark times, and we all have them, when we begin to look, recognize, and know to just a chosen few around us who are safe and who know God, and then begin to relate in community with those people with the strength and potency of family, look out. Because that's a game changer in your spiritual life and even in your experience of Jesus than you could ever imagine. Because what I have found is that it is here that spiritual sparks begin to fly and the Holy Spirit begins to blow like never before. Some of you might, might have heard this already. I made the news this week. It's, it's kind of sad, but also uh, we're rejoicing with the family uh, about the homegoing. Larry Crabb, our dear friend and a close friend of mine, uh, passed away last weekend. It was somewhat unexpected. He was 77 years old, but he'd been battling cancer for a very long time and uh, and, and we knew about it about a month before, those of us who were close to him. And, and I even got a wonderful chance to talk to him about 36 hours before and, uh, and, and just share with him some ways he'd been a great friend and a dear mentor in my life. And, and then he passed away rather peacefully uh, with his two sons and, and his wife, Rachel, around him. And, and the reason I say rejoice is because Larry made it very clear before he died that though people were going to grieve his loss, that you know, because he wrote so much about heaven and wrote so much uh, as a Christian psychologist and a spiritual director about how heaven's that perfect, beautiful, you know, no more tears healing place that he said, make sure you celebrate where I am. In fact, funny story, at one point, one of his sons said to him, hey, dad, you know, do you think you'll be able to see down from heaven and, you know, look down upon us? And he said, no, I'm going to be way too busy. I'll see you when you get there. And, and, and so the idea was Larry was just so in love with eternity and what was going to happen. His family said, we dare not sully this time, you know. But, but yet there is grief, obviously, to be had. I've been invited up to, to Denver in April to participate in, in his service, the memorial service. And so y'all can pray for me with that because uh, I, I hope the words I share will do justice to his life and, and glory to God, obviously. Uh, this whole week, as I've been mourning the loss of my friend, I also... Uh, thought a lot about the last 15 years with him. I got to know Larry really well about 17, 18 years ago, actually, back in 2003, 2004, because I was his son's pastor in Cleveland. And Larry just, I mean, he was very protective of his two boys, especially on a spiritual level. So uh, whoever his pastors were, look out, uh, because he would come to Cleveland and he'd take me out to lunch and I'd be so honored, you know, but he was just grilling me to make sure I was doing good by his son. 
And, uh, and, and he got to know me pretty well that way, and I got to know him. And in 2004, he invited me to, to go into one of his school of spiritual direction. It was the first time I really got to know him back in 2004. And it was a private event of about 30 people in which for a whole week he would teach us on how to give and do spiritual direction, and then he would have us practice it. That was the brutal part, because after he would teach us, he would then pair us with somebody, and wouldn't you know I got paired with him, and, and, and he would then do spiritual direction on me. And, and what that involved was uh, just bury, bury, burying your soul, can't even say the words, burying your soul in, in such a way that he would then, he would call it asking curious questions. I would say it was asking brutal questions about you know, the state of one's fallen but redeemed soul. And my first experience with that was, was very uh, difficult. I, I came unglued, I, I came undone, because there wasn't any sin I thought that I was really covering up, but when he exposed just sort, some of the, the vileness in my heart and some of the areas that I really thought I had made progress on but really hadn't, especially when it came to the interior life, I, uh, I was very undone and I was very uncomfortable. In fact, I was so uncomfortable that I actually called the airport halfway through that week and was looking to fly home early because I thought, I've, I've had enough of this and, uh, and, I, and I just wanted to leave and I wanted to get back to my church where I could immerse myself in people's lives and forget about me. Doesn't that sound so godly? And, and I wanted to do that. But I thought I at least owed it to Larry to tell him what I was doing. So I remember that Wednesday night I told him what I was doing. And I'll never forget what he did next. He said some things to me that were you know, rather encouraging and you know, that he thought the Holy Spirit was the one unmasking me, not him, and that you know, this is what spiritual direction is and to hang in there with it and that you know, it's painful, but God's in the process. He said all the right words. None of them were really making me think about canceling the flight. And then he said something to me that nobody had ever said to me, save for maybe Kim in my entire life. Not even my dad had ever said this. He said to me, Jamie, here's what you might not understand about you and me right now. He said, I, I love you so much. I, I respect you so much as a pastor. I care for you so much as a brother after getting to know you the last few years, way beyond being my son's pastor. He said, there's nothing you could do. There's nothing that I could expose in you, and I've been doing this a long time, that would make me love you any less. He, he said, I love you. I respect you, you're safe. It's okay. And again, man, I don't know about you, but in, especially 15 years ago, in that moment, I was like, I didn't say this to him, but I was like, I don't believe that. <laughs> that that's way too good to be true. Trust me, Larry, if only you knew, if you knew some of the things I thought and, and some of the things I don't like to talk about that go on in my heart and all that, if you only knew some of the darkness there, it, it would repel you, I promise you. I didn't say that, but I was thinking all that. And you could almost see the wheels turning in his head because he said to me, and he got him trying to make a joke out of him. He said, look, Jamie, outside of you harming one of my grandchildren, he said, there's nothing you can do that would make me love you any less. I, I stayed the rest of that week and Larry wrote me a wonderful note coming out of that week. And for the next 15 to 17 years, I tested him in that on a regular basis. He would be what I think every Christian needs to have. He would be what I come to call my confessor. He's the person that I meet with regularly and just bear my soul to. Again, Kim on a regular basis too, but if I had a male friend, it would have been Larry that way. And he proved true to his words. He loved me no matter what. And see, here's my point in that. I think that's what Jesus was talking about on the cross. Jesus was talking about the kind of love 
the kind of faithfulness, the kind of friendship, that though sadly rare and is not designed to be a one-off, now watch this, is supposed to be part and parcel of our experience with Almighty God. <laughs> See, that's why I think Jesus brought this up on the cross. That's where I've been going with us all day here, that, that on this cross in this dark time where we expect him to only say what we might think be spiritual things, Jesus gets really relational and drops this bomb about community. And I believe what he's getting at here is that when you and I are at our lowest and our darkest times like me 17 years ago, that's precisely when we need community. That when your family is letting you down, when your kids aren't turning out right, when society is ticking you off, when work stinks, some of you are saying, what work? When emotions are going haywire, you guys know what I'm talking about. That's precisely when Jesus looks to you from the cross and he says, behold, Look, listen, recognize, know your mother, your brother. And he doesn't mean your literal mother, your literal brother. He means a chosen few around you, you who you have the guts to open up to or the guts to, to open your life up to. And again, I know how some of you are thinking, I get it, I think just like you. If I was in your seat right now and I was hearing this maybe for the first time or, the, or maybe some of the, the, the vision behind this for the first time, I'd be thinking, ah, it's a lot easier said than done. And if I was really honest, I would say, Jamie, everything in me does not want to do that. And I get that. I get that. When I'm hurting, I don't know if you guys ever noticed the difference between dogs and cats. You know, when dogs are hurting, they run to you. When cats are hurting, they go off to the field to die. It's really true. I had cats growing up. And, and, and again, cats are not, I love cats. Some of my best friends are cats. Okay, I like cats, but they, they, they're not as cuddly that way. And, 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 and I'm like a cat. That's why I kind of relate to cats. Because when I'm hurting, Kim would tell you, I want to close in ranks. I want to be alone. I want to be David Crockett. I want to be an individual here. And I'll fight the fight that I can myself, me and God, but I don't need you. A couple of months ago, my son was getting married and I got blindsided by anxiety I didn't see coming. I'm laughing because I was actually glad he was getting married, finally. And so, you know, I was like, you know, my son found the love of his life. He's getting married and I think this is great. And I was gonna perform the ceremony. I did perform the ceremony. We had relatives coming in from out of town. It was a COVID, so it wasn't that big of a, you know, crowd. And, and, and that ended up being a great wedding. But, but I woke up the Wednesday before that, that, that Saturday and I, I had a level of anxiety I hadn't had since seminary. Just this anxiousness in my spirit and, and I couldn't settle down and, and it really took me off guard. And, uh, you know, I thought, wow, where's this coming from? And, and, and it didn't abate until after the wedding. And again, I, I, I told you guys, I'm like most men, I'm not always in touch with my feelings at all. And to this day, I don't even know exactly what it was. I, I didn't feel like I should be that anxious about it, but I was. And, you know, so like most men, I would have said I felt bad beforehand and good after that. So, you know, everything's fine. And, and I meet with a group of men every Tuesday morning that are my my confessors, my peers, I've been taught to do that, and they're my accountability group, and I was meeting with them that, about a week later, and I, and I told them about this experience. And, and one of them asked the right question. It was Larry Anderson, he's such a godly man. Larry said to me, he said, why didn't you call during that time? Why, why didn't you pick up the phone and just let us journey with you through it? And I was embarrassed because the answer was, that never crossed my mind. <laughs> 
The answer was, I, I, I don't do that when I'm, I mean, I, what, what are you going to give me a Prozac? I mean, how would you help with me at that time? I'm like going, I, I, I don't even, but then I, as I was thinking all this, I thought, I know exactly what he meant by that. That, that whether I feel the need to or not, this is why we have community to journey with me in that. And then I thought the second reason that I didn't want to do it, and that's that I didn't want you guys to mess this up. Because if I know men, you're going to try to fix me. Or you're going to try to say something trite. Not that Christians ever say anything trite, but just go with me on that. They might say something trite. Like, well, I go through that, and everybody goes through that, and da 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 And if you tried this and tried that, and I thought, I, I just want to go down that road. But I, but I know what God would say to me. God would say, you, you need to journey with them anyways. I made a commitment to them that next time I feel that way, I'm hoping it's a long time from now, but next time I feel that way, I'll invite them in more to that. You see, I think that's what God is teaching me right now. How about you? I, I get all the excuses we have to not doing the behold that Jesus is talking about here. I get it. Some of you are saying, I don't have people like that in my life. I'll find them. <laughs> or even more to the point, pray about it, right? I've been there before. I've served four churches over the last 30 years. And when I come to a new area, everybody wants to be my friend. Few can actually do it, amen? Few would I really trust to let in. So, so there have been long seasons where I didn't have somebody, but I prayed about it. Lord, who do I trust? Who are you bringing into my life? I, I get that, but don't use those excuses as an opportunity to miss the behold that Jesus gives us from the cross. Because it's in that behold that our spiritual growth and our community are found. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for these amazing final words of Jesus as he is on the cross. Rustin's gonna guide us next week in this idea of thirst. And then Lord, on Good Friday, we're gonna take a look at those profound words. It is finished. But Lord, these seem to come out of nowhere. Behold your mother, behold your son. And Father, what tender, beautiful words those are from our Savior Jesus. And God, as we apply these to our lives today, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be men and women of faith who, as we look to the cross and as we go through dark times of our own souls, would not be afraid to look and, and, and then to, to, to recognize and to know and even love like family. Surprise us with joy, Lord, when we do that. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.